Let's do it. Let's do it. Broadcasting from around the world, you're listening to The First 100, a podcast on how founders acquired their first 100 paying customers. Here's your host, Hadi Rodwan. Greg, good to have you on the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks, Adi. Great to be here. Thank you for stopping by. I'm very excited about a space you're in. I've interviewed recently someone in, in the compliance uh, space, and it seems like it's a hot topic these days because I believe everyone around the world is trying to compliance proof themselves. But before we start into that story, my guest today is Craig Unger, the co-founder and CEO of Hyperproof which is a software as a service, risk and compliance management company. And uh, you've raised to date 66.5 million from notable investors such as Riverwood Capital and Toba Capital. Craig, before we dive into your story, tell us, how did you end up in the compliance space? Yeah, thanks, Hadi. It started for me back when I was at Microsoft, Hadi. I spent the first 20 years of my career at Microsoft at one point, I used to run a team that was responsible for all of our authentication services, like Windows Live ID, now called Microsoft ID. And at a certain point, somebody in our marketing team had called Microsoft ID secure. And this was a problem from the perspective of the government because it was too sweeping a claim. They came and visited Microsoft and we had a set of discussions and it was a choice between us getting compliant or maybe you know facing the FTC in court. And we decided to put ourselves on a pretty strict regime of standard operating procedures and very deep audits every couple years. And my team was responsible for that. I had no previous compliance experience. So after that, you know, experience where it was a fire drill to get us ready for the audit, people were quite concerned, especially because the fines that would have been levied should we not have kept to our standard operating procedures were significant. It was a million dollars a user a day. So realizing that there really wasn't any software, you know, we struggled. I had another experience at my first startup where we were also getting compliant with no really good software to help things move in the right direction. So I decided to start Hyperproof back in 2018. Amazing. So you talked about these contrasting companies, your startup, small startup, and then Microsoft, which is a powerhouse in, in the technology space. How did you actually make compliance simpler and faster? Well, first, I'll tell you a little bit about the process that we went through. I had the thought that, you know, this area of software, much like CRM or ERP before it was in need of a true enterprise application to come in and have an opinionated methodology of how you can do compliance, specifically do it through the year, not just in preparation for the audit. And so we came in with a methodology we call compliance operations or ComOps. Now, that was a theory. But what I did at first was I engaged in a lot of networking, LinkedIn and through other folks, email, all the standard ways. And I went and I did about personally 30 to 50 interviews of different individuals in different roles that are related to compliance, whether they work in what's typically known as GRC or they're a security analyst or an internal auditor or maybe from one of the big four as an external auditor and asked a set of questions to understand whether my thesis was correct. And I got a pretty strong set of positive feedback that, you know, this was an area that was really in need of a lot of innovation. And so after those interviews, I really 
formally incorporated and decided to get going and start recruiting folks. Amazing. Take us back to your early thought process of how you identified the pain point, especially when you're identifying the user persona. So you have the user persona, someone who's going to be using it, and then the buying persona, the decision maker at the firm. How did you identify the difference and how did you early start on? Because you cannot go directly to a Microsoft. You're a small brand at the beginning, right? Yeah, and I was probably there, Hadi, leading on my most recent experience at my first startup because there I was co-founder and CTO and I was pulled into the role of being effectively, you know, CISO or chief compliance officer because I had to get our company compliant. And I think anybody who's worked in an early stage startup realizes that there's nobody to lean on for that. Uh, You know, you have to do it yourself. And so you have another job which is thrust upon you and you're looking at it and saying, well, you know, I can't really give up what I'm doing every day to be fully focused on compliance. So are there tools that can actually make things easier? So that was almost like the initial fuel of the fire. And then you're you're right, Hadi, that you have to then take that theory and say, how does it work in a larger organization where there's more specificity in the roles? And so, for instance, in the beginning, I really wasn't 100% sure who would be the user, who would be the purchaser in these large organizations until we got further in. And then I kind of uncovered that dynamic, which especially back then tended to be CISOs who were quite aware of the problem, but oftentimes didn't have the experience themselves because they came more from a security background than a compliance background. And so they would be aware of the problem and then they would introduce me to the leader in their team. That could be a chief compliance officer, a head of GRC, or sometimes it was a security analyst, somebody without any kind of compliance title. And so what really ended up happening was you got introduced to the user who was one or two levels down from the CISO. And sometimes they're the buyer because they have their own budget. And oftentimes it goes up to the CISO as the buyer. And that's what we uncovered. Thank you for sharing this. So you have hundreds of companies now using Hyperproof and uh, have companies like Motorola, Nutanix, 3M. The show is about the first 100 paying customers. So take us back to the early customers. How did that start? What strategies did you use early on? Is there any non-scalable or scalable techniques you've used? Well, I mean, in a way, it always is non-scalable in the beginning because you're leaning on the connections and networks of a very small set of people. And yes, there are other strategies that you can use in the beginning that tend to be a little bit less scalable. What I've seen happen there is folks who come in and say, look, let me identify the highest order opportunity, which is your problem, right? I mean, that's, you know, I guess there's been uh, a theory that says whenever anybody uses profanity, there's actually a selling opportunity. You know, you can solve some problem for them. And then what a lot of companies do then is they say, look, we'll solve that problem no matter what the shape of the solution is. So sometimes the solution has to be something very customized, professional services, something that's kind of one and done. And then through that type of experience, you actually generalize, 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 and end up with a piece of software that is scalable and repeatable. Now, at Hyperproof, we did a little bit of that, but actually not that much. I mean, we did, especially as my second startup, we did have a lot of the... uh, kind of diligence to assure that the investments that we're making, which were so crucial given how small a company we were, had repeatability. And because we had the benefit of making the connections that we did with all the interviews, because I did 30 to 50, but then we had a couple of others join us and we expanded. We ended up with about 150 interviews. 
we were able to go back to those people and let them know, hey, here's what we're thinking. Can you tell us how important this is? And we were able to get that data consensus across a wider variety, which allowed us to avoid doing a lot of things that were non-scalable. Makes a lot of sense. And early on, when you went through all your connections, what was the next acquisition strategy you went after? Well, I mean, what we did is we tried to look for the problems that we thought people would pay for. And that's the way we asked. We said like, how, you know, and we were trying to delineate the value proposition. We were listening and trying to delineate it back to customers in terms of that they can understand, which would be things like reduced the cost and increase the efficiency of doing these compliance workloads. That quickly became scaling your compliance team into doing more work without having to hire. And so then it became one of avoiding, you know, having to grow your operational costs at a rate that you can't afford given how much the regulatory bodies are growing the number of compliance frameworks that you have to comply with. The other variable in that was also reducing risk, how we can help organizations reduce reputational risk. So really what we did was we took some of those main elements, we came up with a value proposition around it, and as we went out to each new prospect, we would test our value proposition with them directly, and where there was a hit, you know, a match, we would actually propose, we start out like anybody else, we would have proposals of with a software licensing agreement, and we, we really did lean on software licensing versus any type of custom work. And, you know, we closed some, we lost some, and we just kept learning from the losses. Any successes we had were built on failures that we had before. How do you overcome a long sales cycle? Because you're selling a business that has a substantial account value. It's not 5,000, it's not 100,000, somewhere in the middle. How would you mitigate the long sales cycle when it comes to selling a enterprise solutions? You can only mitigate that so much, Hadi. One of the things that customers do in SaaS is they start off selling in the mid-market, which we absolutely did. And in that case, the mid-market companies, and especially if you concentrate on ones that are very tech forward, they understand the benefits of bringing technology in. But interestingly, they're also the ones that can't really over hire, if you will, whereas some of the large organizations have so many people that they can muscle the problem for longer. So start at, you know, medium sized companies that are very tech forward and understand the value of the solution and then, you know, go from there. Now, those companies do have shorter sales cycles. You know, they understand their budgets a little bit better. They know what they're trying to get done. It's once you get to the larger enterprises, there's frankly only so much you can do to make the sales cycle longer. But we can talk about that because there are some strategies there to shorten it. Amazing. You're in your second startup. Before that, you were working uh, with Microsoft for more than 12 years. Tell us about the mindset shift that requires someone to move from the corporate world to the startup. When is it time for someone to say, okay, I have the right mentality and here it is what the mentality should be so that I do a switch, especially if you're working with a company so prestigious as Microsoft with a very important role because you were the GM of um, the Dynamics CRM. Yeah, so, and actually I was here at Microsoft for 21 years, but it's a great question, Hadi. One key thing, there's a few angles to that. One is the angle that pushes you away from something and then the angle that pushes you towards something else. And I think when it comes to looking at when it might be time to leave a larger organization that offers a bit more security, obviously it's multifaceted. I left when I was 42. And for me, some of the calculus was, <laughs> if I don't do it now, will I ever do it? You know, will I have the energy to go do some startups? But I also had thought about leaving earlier, but I had 
situations. For instance, I was going through a divorce and it was not a good time to leave. And I wanted to keep things pretty similar for the kids in terms of how they had grown up. So that was one thing. But also, you know, just looking at whether you're learning, if you have the financial and, you know, in terms of family situation, that's supportive of making a move. One way to know whether it's time to make it is just to look at whether you're learning and whether you're continuing to grow, you know, in terms of your skill set and how your career towards your career goals, I guess I would say. And Microsoft was pretty unique in that way in that it was able to offer me a lot of learning and growth far beyond when I thought it might end. Like I thought it might end when I was five to 10 years into my career, but I was still learning a lot at 15 plus. So for me, it was bringing together that I wasn't learning as much in my new job. The kids had grown up financially. I had been at Microsoft long enough. So I had almost the luxury of doing a startup. And then there was the age factor. And that's kind of why I left. Now, there's a whole different discussion about why to do a startup or not. So if you like, I can cover that because I think that is a very tough part of the equation as well. Yeah, absolutely. If you don't mind. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of interesting attractions to a startup. I mean, there's notoriety and having your product out there. Obviously, there's the financial incentives and being able to profit in a way that no company, no matter how large, can offer to a broad range of employees. There's the ability to have control over who you hire and who you work with, which I think is actually a tremendous benefit of doing a startup. You can create a team and a culture, which we've been very careful about at Hyperproof, and you can create kind of the workplace that you would ideally like to work in. And I think those things are important and they're not to be overlooked. But if I were to say what the one thing, the one reason why an individual would start a startup, it has to do with having passion to change things. Because the startup, you know, looks better and worse at different times. Even some of the, you know, very big companies, the Facebooks of the world and uh, Googles, I'm sure they all look like terrible ideas at a certain point, right? So you have to be able to work yourself through those periods of where there's challenge, you're not sure of your financial future. And, you know, when it's late at night and you're looking up at the ceiling wondering, there has to be something that's motivating you to get up in the hardest times. And so that is the idea that you want to have a particular impact and solve a particular problem. So from my perspective, that is the best reason to do a startup. And that is the reason why you solve other problems and force yourself to kind of drink from a fire hose and learn is to really have that kind of impact. Amazing. What sort of learnings did you bring with you to your startup world from Microsoft? And what are things that you had to unlearn so that you can adopt the new mindset, which is the entrepreneurship mindset? The learnings, I'd say, Harik, were in how to build scalable software and also scalable teams that understand how to build software. Because when you're at a company like Microsoft for as long as I was there, you learn a lot about how to build organizations that are in addition to cultures and groups of, of very talented people, they're also systems in and of themselves. They're not software systems, but they're systems and they need to be self-healing. They need to have a strong enough culture and set of values that when something doesn't match the basic ethos of the team and the culture, that systems are in place to be able to move past that and get to a place where you want to be. And I think some of those lessons in how to build productive, larger teams were absolutely tremendous and help me in my job every day. Also understanding how to build a platform and what a strategy would be to attack a market 
and who are the different players in those markets and what each one are looking for. Because Microsoft and other companies like it serve so many different personas and roles, that was a tremendous learning as well. And also some of the economics of the software business subscription and how you think about it in churn and what some of the other you know, gotchas are were all amazing learnings at Microsoft. I personally didn't find that I had to unlearn too much, although I've heard that, you know, that it's very common for people to approach the startup problem with thinking that they'll have, you know, Microsoft-sized budgets and then they'll overspend or that they'll be able to rely on their Microsoft credentials, network, and title, which you no longer have. And so people don't necessarily pick up the phone when you're not from Microsoft. Those things are, are both true, but I fully expected that when I left. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't kidding myself. I'm a realist. Those things could serve to get in your way. Rather than a particular learning that I think would get in people's way from a large company, it's actually more of a mentality. The mentality in some of these larger companies is that the size of the organization fuels the business and a lot of your activities. And so you get good at representing an organization of size versus representing an idea or a band of revolutionaries, if you want to call it that. You don't learn those skills. And so if you have that mentality, you may not be open to learning the skills that you need when you're in kind of a smaller configuration. Amazing. Thank you for sharing this. If we have entrepreneurs here listening to, they're planning to raise their seed round or series A round. Is there any tips you might give them on when is it the right time to go out and find that means ranges of revenues, ranges of growth, any other metrics that they need to keep their eyes on? Well, Hadi, I have many, many, many lessons about raising a Series A, more than would fit in here. But if I'm going to pick a few to focus on, one would be to assure that you're really in tune with what the investor community is really looking for. I think that's the crucial piece because There's the investors, if you're a credible person with an interesting idea, the investors will always want to stay connected with you. And so reading the signs of somebody who is either a tourist or, you know, or just following you or something like that in your business versus somebody who's really ready to lean in, invest, you know, it's good in the game is a set of questioning that you just need to perfect. There are things like how active are you? How many investments have you made in companies of our size? Can you tell me who they are? Can I speak to them, et cetera? And there's no substitute for just asking what they're looking for. Like, let me not spend all of the time talking with you, singing and dancing about my company and my idea. But instead, let me say, what is it that you look for? You know, and then, you know, affirm, we may not even be there yet. We may be a year or two off, you know, but I'd like to know what's important to you. And I think that consistent learning from investors at every stage, Series A and then Series B to growth is absolutely crucial. I've had a lot of very recent learning just in my recent raise, Series B and growth, and understanding what growth investors are actually looking for that I wish I had five years earlier in my entrepreneurial journey. What I've also found is that most of the investors are extremely open and they want to share that with you. They want to see you succeed. And so getting the most from them and taking advantage of the fact that they do want to help is really up to the entrepreneur. Otherwise, they're busy enough that they will just get the information they need from you and then move on to the next company. The road to success is not a straight line. There's always ups and downs. Is there a crucible moment that has happened in your firm that you were on the verge of you know, either going south or north? 
Well, we, again, are a little bit fortunate in that we did not have to pivot our company in the five years that we've been around. So we started with very much the same vision. Our vision there was to help organizations keep their promises. We've modified it a bit to help individuals trust the organizations in their lives. So we've given it a different perspective um, from the organizations. But the technology and the overall vessel that we innovate in, which largely I would say is kind of trust risk compliance, that basic area hasn't changed. And the approach that we took towards building a unique product hasn't changed. So we didn't have, you know, a South North, you know, should we stop the company or pivot and, you know, recapitalize and all that. We've been on a pretty steady path of growth and I'm thankful for that. But we've had, of course, a lot and every company will, a lot of very challenging times where you're looking at how much you know money you have in the bank and looking at what your runway is and saying, will we be able to get to that next level and raise between now and then so that we can give a very comfortable environment as much as it can be comfortable in a startup. Those things are important because it's not just about what you project around the raise, but it's about how that affects the entire culture of the organization. If people feel like they're not secure in what they're doing, then they can't be expected to be their best selves. And so there is a responsibility for the executive team to assure that they're actually leading and providing enough certainty so that they can really build the company they want instead of iterating and building three or four companies until they get to build the company they want. And I do think we've been able to succeed at that. And some of it is thoughtful and some of it is luck, but we've been able to. Amazing. Thank you for sharing this. What's the principle that you live by that has served you well in your journey? One of the biggest that's it's been tremendous for us is transparency. And I think that's crucial because if you look at why people join startups, they can get higher salaries at large companies. They join for a combination of the learning and then also potentially the impact they can have and then potentially the financial you know, remuneration that can happen from a great success. But I think too many founders overlook the learning part of it. And so we've been very serious about being very transparent. So I've promised the company from the get-go that I will share every investor mail that I send to investors and I'll redact if I need to redact anything. And I've redacted one sentence once. And in the five years, I've shared everything with the company. So they know exactly where we stand. And I shared every twist and turn of the fundraising journey and what folks were looking for as investors and where we needed to go. And then post-raising, I shared what was the nature of the conversations, how many term sheets do we have, how many meetings did I take, how do we progress those discussions. So I've been very serious about making the startup the learning experience that it could be. And I think it's really helped people in so many ways in the company, both in their careers, but also in terms of trusting our own leadership team. Excellent. Greg, thank you for stopping by. Uh, one last question. Uh, what's next for your firm and yourself? Well, for me, I plan to be doing the same thing I'm doing for a while. So no immediate plans, but we're very happy to have raised in a tough environment. So, you know, we're taking those funds and we're looking at moving international in 2024, absolutely moving into additional industries and verticals for us in compliance, uh, healthcare, financial services, life sciences, and even government are great industries to go into. Definitely looking to elevate the brands. We were ranked the number one IRM solution in G2, over 125 competitors. So continuing to really lean into getting those customer stories out and making sure everybody knows who we are and just continuing to do the things you'd expect, which is hiring more incredible developers, product managers, marketing and sales folks to expand the business. We have very, uh, we've been growing fast. We have very aggressive growth goals. And so we're very committed to meeting those. 
Excellent. Greg, thank you for stopping by. This was an amazing episode. Uh, two questions. One, how can people reach you and are you hiring? Yes, we're hiring and the positions are up on our site. So we're hiring from everything from BDRs all the way up to folks who are very senior working on our customer strategy, et cetera, developers. And uh, the other question was around how to get in touch, Craig at hyperproof.io, or you can come to the site and plenty of ways to get in touch with us more generally, but always happy to talk to folks and to help out anybody who's on the entrepreneurial journey. So definitely feel free to get in touch. We wish you the best of luck. Have a great day. Thank you, Hadi. Thank you so much for listening to The First 100. We hope it inspired you in your journey. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify, and share it with a friend starting their entrepreneurship journey. Leave us a five-star review. Your support will help spread our podcast to more viewers. 